We are returning now to our teaching through the epistle to the Hebrews. So if you want to open up to the third chapter, that's where uh, we pick up today. In chapter 3, verse 7 is our picking up point. And so, Lord, we pray as we come back to your word here today, we pray that you would speak to us. And, Lord, we believe that this is your word. We believe that it's relevant for all time from generation to generation. And even though it was written to first century Jewish believers, we know that it has application to us here in the 21st century, right here today as we've gathered Lord, we want to receive from you what you have for us in this passage today. So bring that to us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So just a quick reminder for some of you that maybe are uh, with us for the first time or maybe you haven't been with us as we're making our way through our study in Hebrews. Hebrews was written uh, to... The early uh, Jewish Christians, I think in Jerusalem, who had, had started well and had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but as time has gone on and as things haven't uh, gone exactly the way that they had uh, thought that they might go, uh, the Lord hasn't returned and set up the Davidic kingdom that they were perhaps uh, thinking was going to happen immediately uh, because They've been facing difficulty in the culture and they've been experiencing persecution and, and things like that. Because of all of that, they were, they were being tempted to uh, turn away from Christ. And, and what their real temptation was, was to go back to Judaism. You see, for them, that was the comfortable thing to do. Uh, it would have been very... Uh, much easier for them to go back and just become part of the temple ritual, become part of the, the community once again, to uh, just uh, attend synagogue. Uh, that would have been the much easier thing. And because of the pressures of the day, they were thinking about doing that. But the author of this letter, whoever it might have been, we know that of course, the, the spirits, the inspiration behind it, uh, but the author is uh, appealing to them strongly not to do that and, and showing them that to do that would be a massive mistake because in, if they were to depart from Christ, in effect, they would be departing from God. If they were to go back to Judaism, they would go back to a system that God had vacated. God was doing a new thing. So, so the author is urging them to maintain their position, to hold on to their faith. And he's, he's doing that in a number of ways. He, number one, he's, he's wanting them to understand and know just who Jesus is. Because part of the problem is they, they've lost sight of the supremacy of Christ. They've lost sight of, of the fact that he is uh, really the God of Israel. He is the God of Israel who became a man. He's God the Son. And so he points them back to that. He also shows how Jesus is, he's greater than and he's better than everything that preceded him. As a matter of fact, all of those previous things were pointing to him. And so that's part of the way he 
argues his case, but then also, all throughout this epistle, he inserts these warnings. And the epistle to the Hebrews is probably um, the most warning-filled book in the New Testament, because uh, over and over again, he comes back to these warnings uh, about the possibility of not finishing well. You see, they started well, but the more important thing was that they were to finish well. And so we come to the third chapter, and uh, having shown the the supremacy of Christ over the angels, he moves then in the third chapter to speak of the supremacy of Christ over Moses. Moses was the towering figure in uh, the, the Hebrew mind. He was the one to whom everything that they knew and cherished was connected. So uh, the author shows that that as great as Moses was, he was great as God's servant in God's house, but Jesus is God's son over God's house. So showing the superiority of Jesus to Moses. And then having said that in um, the sixth verse, when when it speaks of God's house, he's talking about God's family, God's household. And Christ is a son over uh, his own house, the house of God. And verse six says, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm to the end. So he keeps coming back to this exhortation to hold fast to your confidence. And then we pick up here in verse seven. So let me read verse seven through the rest of the chapter. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my way, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become, or we are partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his wrath, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So he's continuing with the exhortation to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing. And as he's already done several times, he he continues to reference the scriptures. Uh, To us, we would consider them the Old Testament, uh, but he he considers to reference the Jewish scriptures. So he, he, he exhorts them to hold firm, and then he says... Uh, quoting from Psalm 95, the one that we read today. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so the, the author here is seeing a potential parallel between 
what happened with the ancient Israelites and, and what could happen with those at the time. And what he's saying to them is don't let what happened to them happen to you. Instead, listen to what God is saying. Respond to what God is saying. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like they did. You see, this was the danger. Uh, they, they were, uh, again, as I said, they were, they were being tempted to go back to the old system and the, the exhortation for them not to do that, they were somewhat resistant to it, evidently. So he appeals to this 95th Psalm and then verses 12 through 14, this is where he gives a very clear warning on the one hand, but he also gives within the uh, context there, he also shows us uh, the protective measures that we are to take uh, so that this kind of thing that he's talking about here doesn't happen. What is he talking about ultimately? He's talking about uh, departing from the living God. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So he wants them to understand that to leave their faith in Jesus would be nothing less than departing from the living God. They would be doing, by going back to Judaism, they would be just like their ancestors who, who went into idolatry. They forsook the living God for false gods. The author is saying, essentially, if you were to do this, you would be basically doing the same thing. You would be departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So there's a couple things that I want us to see. First of all, I want us to see what, what leads to this uh, departure from the living God. And he mentions it here. It begins with the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. We have got to get this straight. We've got to be clear about this. Sin, it, by its very nature, is deceptive. By its very nature, it's deceptive. Many places in, especially Paul's writings, he uses this phrase, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Why? He knows the, the deceiving power of sin. You see, what sin does is sin promises, but it can never deliver. Sin promises that if you just you know, follow after certain things, you'll have the good life. Uh, you'll, you'll be blessed if you just you know, give yourself over to these uh, certain things. But the, the promise never materializes. That, that's the deceptive part of sin. It tricks us into thinking that these things that God says are harmful are not harmful. That these things that God says are, are evil and bad and destructive, oh, they're not really that at all. They're actually beneficial and, and you, know, you, need to, you need to buy into this. Sin is deceitful. Later on in this same letter, he speaks of the... Um, the passing pleasures of sin. This is another thing about sin. There's a momentary or a temporary pleasure to sin. Of course, if sin was just, 
you know, what it ultimately is on the surface, none of us would engage in it, right? I mean, if you, if you could see the end outcome, I mean, we can see it. We should, we should be able to see it. I mean, think of, you might even uh, have seen this personally. Maybe, maybe you've seen a person who you knew before they became a crystal meth addict. And you knew them as a, as a bright and a young and a healthy and a vibrant and a strong um, person. You knew them like that. And then you, you meet them 10 years later and you see this person who's just withered away. You see this person who's, whose life is consumed. You see this person who visibly, physically is a shell of what they used to be. Mentally, they're a shell of what they used to be. Oftentimes, you know, their complexion is all uh, messed up and they've lost their teeth and everything else. Now, here's my point. That's where sin leads to, that, that, that particular sin. All sin leads to a similar kind of thing, but that's where that particular sin leads to. But when people start doing crystal meth, they don't think about that, do they? I mean, we just need to have big billboards up with those kinds of uh, faces and features. Hey, this is where it's headed. This is what it's going to be like because we don't believe it. We think, oh, no, that's not true. No, that's, that's not going to happen to me. No, this is going to be okay. I'm going to be able to handle it. It's just going to give me some energy. It's just going to you know, help me get through the work week and all of that. But no, it's not because it's destructive. That's what sin is. Sin is deceitful It is destructive. It promises liberty, but it brings bondage. It promises um, love, but it never can deliver on love. It promises fulfillment, but fulfillment never comes. It promises happiness, but it always, in the end, delivers misery. So note that, first of all, sin is deceitful. Secondly, sin leads to a hardness of heart. Sin leads to a hardness of heart. This is, this is the danger of dabbling in sin, of, of willingly going into things that we know God has forbidden. What it does is it creates a hardness in our hearts. That's why he says, today if you hear his voice, the, the question is, really, if you hear his voice. You see, the more we sin, the less capable we are of hearing God's voice because God speaks to our hearts. But when our hearts become hardened, we can't hear what he's saying. And some people go to the point of thinking, well, I guess God isn't really concerned about this. After all, he hasn't said anything to me about it. I don't hear God speaking to me about it. I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel like there's anything wrong with this. Well, that's why God gave us a Bible. Because we can come to the place where, we're, where our hearts become so hardened, we can no longer hear in that sense. We no longer have the sensitivity to the spirit. We get to a point where we're no longer convicted. Doesn't mean God's changed his mind about the situation just means our hearts have become hard, but God gave us a book called the Bible that tells us what's right and wrong, and that's where we are to draw our uh, understanding about those things from. So sin is deceptive, sin hardens the heart, and sin leads into uh, a lifestyle of unbelief. 
And a lifestyle of unbelief is basically a lifestyle that just shuts God out and you become the authority. You become the one who decides what's right, what's wrong. Uh, You decide what you're going to do and not do. And it's all rooted in this idea that, well, God hasn't really spoken. God hasn't really said anything regarding these kinds of issues or whatever the case might be. So there's so much of this today in our culture. There's this unbelief that is rampant. You know, it's, it's astounding to me how uh, people... Now, of course, out in the world, you, you kind of expect unbelief, right? I mean, that's, that's what it is. But the, the thing that's astounding to me is the unbelief that is rampant in much of the church today. But where does it stem from? It stems from this evil heart. It stems from a heart that's hardened against God and rebel, rebelling against God's authority. And now we're hearing people say, well, I don't believe that the Bible is right when it says certain things. I think the Bible got it wrong. You know, there's a whole group of uh, people today who you can find their um, presence, you know, in social media. They're, they're posting their articles and arguments and so forth. And they're, they're Christians. They, they claim to be Christians. They claim to be Bible believers. They claim to love Jesus and want to serve him. But they are now promoting the idea that the Bible doesn't really teach that homosexuality is wrong. And that, you know, gay marriage is actually, it's, it's a good thing, it's an acceptable thing. And those of us who disagree with that, we just need to get on board, we need to realize that, that we have been misinterpreting the Bible for 2,000 years. That every previous generation got it wrong. They thought the Bible was saying that these kinds of relationships were prohibited by God, but, but no, that's not what the Bible's saying, they say. They don't believe that God is prohibiting this kind of a lifestyle. You see, this is, this is where unbelief will take you to. It'll take you to denying the obvious. It'll take you to rejecting the plain statements of scripture because it doesn't fit with your lifestyle, it doesn't fit with your worldview, it doesn't fit with what you wanna see or do. And the final step in this process is a departing from the living God. So the deceitfulness of sin, the hardness of the heart, the, the, the unbelief, and then it, it finally leads to a departing from God. You see, in the end, you can't deny God's word and his authority over our life and maintain a relationship with him. It doesn't work that way. Our relationship with God is connected to our obedience to him. And he shows that at the end of the chapter here. So these are the dangers. This is what he's saying to beware of. And, you know, the truth of the matter is this. Every one of us have to take heed to this because guess what we all have? 
we all have an evil heart that is inclined toward unbelief. We, we all have that. That's, that's, that's the problem. Jeremiah, the prophet, spoke these words, God speaking through him, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked or incurably sick. Who can know it? The fact of the matter is, and when he says the heart, he's talking about the human heart. Not just some people's hearts. He's talking about every single one of us. Our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked, incurably sick. Who can know it? The, the point there is that, listen, you are more wicked. I am more wicked than I could ever even know. I, I don't think I'm as wicked as I really am. I don't think I'm as evil as I am. I think I'm okay. But you see, that's the problem. I don't know the depths of my own depravity, but it goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart. You see, this is the truth. We don't know the depth of our own depravity, but there's somebody that does. God does. And of course, that's why he tells us things like guard your heart. With all diligence, guard your heart. That's why there's always these references back to the heart. This is speaking of the core of our person. And because the reality is all of us have these issues of, of sin deep in our hearts, we all have to be on our guard. We all have to fight against this. This is not just a problem for a few people. Uh, a minority. This is an issue for all of us. And of course, as God's people, we have a new heart. We are a new creation. But we have alongside of us the old nature that is constantly warring and fighting and wanting to take control of our lives again. So, how do we prevent this kind of thing from happening. He tells us here, he says, exhorting one another, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, listen, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So this is a protective measure that we are given. The protective measure comes through our commitment to one another. Now listen, as a Christian, you cannot survive alone. You can't. God has designed that we be part of his family. We be part of a body. There, there's a strong individualistic mindset in our culture. You know, it's all about me. I can do what I want. I don't need anybody's help. I can stand on my own two feet. Oh, however you want to express it. There's a strong individualism in the culture. And that individualism, it makes its way into the church. And so we become Christians. But we don't think of ourselves as connected to anybody else. Or uh, dependent on anybody else or responsible for anybody else. We just think in terms of me and I've got my personal relationship with Jesus and that's all that matters and we don't see ourselves as, as needing one another, but we need each other. 
That's the point that he's making here. And so he's reminding them that they need to be watching out for each other. We all have these propensities. We all have these uh, inclinations where we can easily be led astray. How do we avoid this? We exhort one another. The word exhort here is the word parakaleo. It's two Greek words together. It means to come alongside of. Parakletus is the the words that are used when Jesus spoke of the, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper. It's the same words, basically. So to exhort one another means that we come alongside of one another. We need each other. We come alongside one another. And we help each other. That's, that's the point. Our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's more than we can handle on our own. We need the support of one another. So what does it mean to exhort one another as he's saying here? Well, let me give you just three things. Number one, it means to pray for each other. It means to pray for each other. But listen, in order to effectively pray for you or in order for you to effectively pray for me, I have to know a little bit about you, right? We have to have a certain degree of vulnerability with each other. We have to to be able to be honest and open with one another. You know, the attitude in churches, and, and we've had it, of course, in our church as well, it, it's just, it's prevalent, I think, in many churches, is that you, you come to church, and you put on your best smile, and you, you know, you put on your best attitude for the time that you're here, and you pretend like everything's great, because, of course, as a Christian, everything's supposed to be great, and you don't want anybody to think that you're not doing great, because that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. I don't know where we ever got that idea. It's not really a biblical idea. When we come together, we're to come together to encourage each other, to help each other. And if we're pretending that everything's great when it's not, we're not really going to be able to help each other. So we have to be vulnerable. We have to be honest. But we have to have an environment where people know that they can be honest where people are, are free enough to say, you know, look, I'm struggling with this. Most people don't do that because here's what they think. They think, man, if I tell them I'm struggling with this, they're going to kick me out of here. They're going to tell me, you shouldn't be here if you're struggling with that. That has happened many times over. And that's something that we have to realize. No, that's not the, that's not the way we deal with each other. When somebody is struggling, when somebody's battling, when somebody is uh, deceived by sin or maybe their heart's growing hard or whatever, this is the critical time where they need others to be able to speak into their life. They need to be vulnerable uh, or able to be vulnerable and say, look, this is, these are my problems. Can you help me? So we pray for each other. We're honest with each other. But again, in order to do that, we really have to we have to trust each other, don't we? And we have to see that this is God's way that things are done. Again, we live in a culture, even with church, where you come to church as an individual or with a few friends. You sit in the same place. 
you get ministered to by the time together, then most of the time we just go off and that's, that's it. Maybe we do that a couple of times a week. But notice he says, exhort one another daily. There's to be a consistent engagement with God's people. Doesn't mean you come to church every day. It means that you connect with God's people consistently and regularly. So there's prayer number one. Secondly, there's in exhorting one another, we instruct each other. We instruct each other. And of course, the ideal situation is for each of us, we're, we're all getting ministered to on um, a personal level. You know, maybe it's through a sermon that's being preached. Maybe it's through a podcast that you're listening to. Uh, maybe it's through your personal devotion. God's really speaking something to you. But then what happens ideally is you, you, as you come together with brothers and sisters, you instruct one another. Hey, let me tell you what God's been speaking to me. Let me, let me share with you what I heard this guy say, and it really, it really spoke to my heart. And as we do that mutually, that exhorts us. That's what he's talking about. That builds us up. That strengthens us. You know, this past week when we were on the East Coast, we had uh, the family together, and a family friend who lives in Philadelphia came to visit for a day and a night. And... Um, He's, he's a dear friend. He's been a friend of the family for many, many years. And um, he's just in a season where he's going through a hard time. And we all sat together around the table one night, and we, we talked for a few hours. And, you know, this guy's, a, I mean, he's essentially a theologian. He has a PhD in theology and so forth. And, you know, he does Christian counseling as a profession and all of that. And, you know, we're sitting there talking and we're all just chiming in on different things that God's been showing us and speaking into our lives and so forth. And at a certain point, he goes, he goes, I'm just getting so, I'm getting so blessed and so strengthened from this conversation. And I thought, wow, praise the Lord. That's, that's what these conversations are supposed to do. That's what it means. Exhort one another, instruct one another, sharing what God's doing in our lives with each other so we can mutually build each other up. And then the third thing I would say, and we could probably go on with a longer list, but uh, for time's sake, let me say one more thing. In exhorting one another, you know, we need to challenge each other. One of our biggest problems, I think, is the tendency to settle for far less than what God has for us. One of our biggest problems today is to just kind of settle into a comfortable situation. And we need to challenge one another. We need to, to really, you know, lovingly, graciously, not in a condemning or a judgmental way, but we need to be able to look at each other and say, hey, what are you doing with what God's given you? How are you really serving the Lord? How are you making a contribution to the kingdom of God? Because that's what we're all supposed to be doing. And you know, the fact of the matter is, there are huge opportunities all over the world today. There are, there are multitudes of open doors. There are tremendous needs everywhere we look. As some of you know, some of our ministry teams, some of our guys have been uh, recently to the Middle East, to Iraq, to places like Turkey. Some have been to uh, Nepal recently. Uh, John and the guys just got back from, a, from an outreach trip to Brazil. So, you know, every time 
guys are going out and ministry, they're, they're all coming back with the same report. The doors are open, the opportunities are there, but the same old problem is with us still today. Who are we going to send? Who's going to go? Who's going to do it? And here's so many of us who uh, have the ability, we, we have the equipment, God's built us up, strengthened us, taught us. We could do things, but we're, we're just sort of complacent. And we think about some of these things, and we, they are challenging because you know, maybe they're not the nicest places in the world to go to, or maybe they're uh, somewhat dangerous or something like that. But you know, that never stopped the apostles. Jesus, when he commissioned his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel, he didn't say, no, go to the safe places. Go to all of the first world countries where everything is nice and cozy and comfy and you can get your cappuccinos and, you know, everything you need right there. (laughs) I love cappuccinos. But, you know, sometimes we're not consciously thinking about it, but sometimes those are the things that are under, under the surface. Those are the things that are keeping us from really engaging, and we need to be challenged. We need to be able to sit across the table from one another with our Bibles open and just say, what, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing in this time for the kingdom of God? Because there is a great and effective door that's open, but there are many adversaries. Nothing's changed. It's just the way it was in Paul's day. So we need to challenge one another as well as instructing and praying for one another. So this is what it means. Among other things, this is what it means when he says, but exhort one another. But again, let me focus on this for a second. He says daily, daily, We have to be committed to this. There has to be a consistency in our lives. One of the things that we are working at doing as a congregation in order to to better facilitate this kind of engagement, I've mentioned this before, but we're planning for 2016, we want to launch a number of home groups, community groups, smaller groups where people can really engage with one another and really do on a consistent basis what's being talked about here. And from those home groups, you can see so many wonderful ministry opportunities develop out of those. But listen, don't wait till 2016 to get engaged. Find fellowship with God's people. Get plugged in. Exhort one another, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, what he's saying here is if we neglect this, we will go the way of our evil tendencies. If we neglect to spiritually build ourselves up, things don't remain neutral. If we neglect to build ourselves up spiritually, guess what? Sin is going to start to resurface and it's going to start to take over our lives again. That's what happens. It's a constant battle. We have to constantly be fighting against the natural tendencies Uh, towards sin. And then he says here in verse 14, for we are partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now, the great concern here, as I think I mentioned earlier, 
the great concern is that these guys, having started, end up not finishing. That's his concern. And so once again, he reminds them, just as he did in verse six, uh, we, are, we are part of his household if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope for him to the end. Now here in verse 14, he's essentially saying the same thing, for we've become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. But then he goes back into their ancestors. For who having heard rebelled Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? You see, what he's saying is, look, all of our ancestors, they came out of Egypt. They were led by Moses. They followed Moses. But what happened? They didn't make it to the promised land. Something happened. Instead of entering into the fullness of what God had for them, they stopped short, and that entire generation, with the exception of two people, There were 600,000 men that left Egypt over the age of 20, 600,000. You know how many entered the promised land 40 years later? Two. Two entered the promised land. 600,000 perished. They died in the wilderness. Why did they die in the wilderness? Because they disobeyed. You see, God didn't call them only out of Egypt. He called them to go into the promised land. But when they came to the border of the promised land, they they said, oh, no, we can't go. We're we're afraid there's giants in the land. We're not going to be able to make it. Joshua and Caleb, the only faithful ones, they said, what are you talking about? No, God's going to be with us. He's going to give us the victory. And they tried to kill Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron at this point. That was the unbelief in their hearts. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen the, uh, the victory over Egypt and the deliverance. And they, they had passed through the Red Sea. But now they can't believe God to take them into the promised land. And you see, the, the primary thing that he's wanting us to understand here is it's not how you begin that's as important. It's how you end. It's how you finish. They all began but they didn't finish. And why didn't they finish? They didn't finish because of unbelief and disobedience. Notice the last two verses, 18 and 19. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You know what's interesting? These two words, not obey or disobeyed, and unbelief, they're the same Greek word. One's translated disobey, the other's translated unbelief. Why is that? Because the one word pretty much means the same thing. Because unbelief always will lead you to disobedience. That was their problem. They didn't believe God, and so they didn't obey God. And we must learn their, uh, the lesson from them. That's what he's saying to these guys. And, and I, th- I think it's interesting because th- he's referring back to the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. These are really the first generation of Hebrews who put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. This is right there at the beginning. These are, I, I believe, Jerusalem Jews. And so the, the parallels are very interesting. He says, look, don't let, don't let what happened to your ancestors happen to you. 
And we're, of course, far removed from that, but we still live with the same dangers. And so we've got to take the same instruction to heart ourselves. We've got to recognize there's all kinds of temptations and and things going on all around us all the time that are wanting to pull us away from Christ and back into the world or back into just religion. You know, for them, it wasn't so much they wanted to go become pagans. They just were going to go become religious, a dead religion. And, you know, I think today there are people that are being tempted toward that as well. Well, you know, man, I've heard people say this. You know, I don't like that church over there. They're, you know, they're too hard. You know, they're, 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 they're too demanding in their preaching. I want to go to this church over here. You know, they don't really require anything of you. And there are people that are going to gravitate toward those places where there's no accountability, there's no requirement, there's no belief in the absolute authority of Scripture, or that God is a living God and He's active today in your life. There's, there's no belief in that. And some people are going to depart, in a sense, from the living God to go back to those kinds of things. But may that not be the case with any of us. Having begun... Let's finish well. That's the important thing. Not drawing back. And and like I said, this is the second uh, of these several warnings in this letter. But as I've said before, as we've been studying Hebrews, you know, what we really need to get a hold of always in, in, in fresh ways is we need to get a hold of the glory of Jesus that Jesus is better than anything. He's better than everything. He's better than everything that preceded him spiritually. And of course, if he's better than all that God initially gave, he's better than anything the world has to offer. He's better than anything the devil has to offer. He's better than anything the flesh has to offer. He's better than anything. And it's when we get that, that reality driven into our hearts that, you know, there's nothing that compares with Jesus. He's the greatest. He's the ultimate. He's the best. Then these other things are naturally less of an issue for us. So God help us to just keep growing in our love for Jesus and our understanding of his greatness and of his glory. Lord, we thank you that you're for us. We thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us. But we recognize from our text today that you speaking to us means we need to respond and not harden our hearts. And so today, Lord, help us In hearing your voice, help us not to harden our hearts. Help us to make the adjustments. Help us to repent where we need to repent. Help us to commit where we need to commit. Help us, Lord, to turn away from things that we need to turn away from and help us engage in things that we need to engage with. Lord, help us to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, keep speaking to us. Keep... uh, challenging us and instructing us and leading us and guiding us that we might glorify you in these days. 
And Lord, as we look around the nation, as we look around the world, as we see there are just multitudes of of opportunities and needs and, and all of those things. Lord, we thank you that despite all the craziness in the culture, there are still people that are longing to hear the truth of the gospel. And Lord, you've equipped us, you've given us your word, you've taught us, you, you've blessed us with so much. And we know that to whom much is given, much is required. So Lord, help us not to sit on our hands. Help us not to just isolate and enjoy what we have privately by ourselves or with a few friends, but help us, Lord, to take what you've given us and to spread it around the world so that others might come as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.